Welcome to Product Knowledge, the podcast about marketing products that improve people's lives. I'm Andrea Schwabi, Director of Media Services at Graphos Product. Mom is a liar. If you ask mom what she thinks about your new business or product, she'll lie and tell you it's fabulous, even if it's not. If you're launching a new business or product, a million things can go wrong. It's important to consider every step when you're introducing something to market. Asking questions is obviously crucial, but it's also where problems can start. The root of marketing is communication. If market research questions return answers like, I think it's a good idea, or I'd buy that, then you're probably asking the wrong questions. People who know you and like you will lie to you because it seems helpful and kind, just like mom. For example, if you ask someone how often they go to the gym, they'll probably inflate the number. But if you ask how many times did you go to the gym last week, you'll probably get a much more realistic or honest answer. Rob Fitzpatrick describes himself as a tinkerer and a tech entrepreneur for over a decade. He believes you can avoid mistakes by asking questions that elicit the answers you need, not the answers you want. Compliments, verbal support, and new ideas can be helpful, but in conversation with Graphos CEO Laurier Mandin, Rob Fitzpatrick says it's better to ask questions about people's problems or challenges. Laurier spoke with Rob Fitzpatrick on Zoom from his home in Barcelona. Can you tell us about the mom test and how you came up with it? Yeah, um, I was a technical founder. Um, I heard about Y Combinator back in 2008 and kind of uh, pitched my idea and they accepted us. We were a very technical, product-oriented team. Um, And he said, okay, you got to go talk to your customers. You need to understand what the customers cared about. I was like, all right, that's a terrible job, but, you know, I'll go do it. I'll take one for the team. And, and I worked really hard. You know, I, I spent so much time, so much energy getting customer feedback and user feedback and asking what they thought before we built things, after we built things. And then we still went out of business. And when I looked back on it, I was like uh, so deeply misunderstanding what I was being told. And I, it was because I was um, as, asking for opinions. And so I was getting opinions. Uh, and that's not like the, the good data you want. That's not what you're looking for. You're looking for real insights about how and why your, your customers do things. And so later, when I was starting my next company, I was like, oh, it's not their job to tell you the truth. It's your job to find the truth. And you do that by asking questions that are so good that even a very biased person, like your mother, uh, couldn't lie to you about because it's a well-structured question. I guess you kind of told us a little bit, but what more specifically is the mom test itself? Oh, so the rules for good questions is uh, you never want to ask for opinions uh, about your idea. Instead, you want to ask how they're already dealing with that issue today or how they dealt with the last time. So concrete specifics in the past or the now. Um, you don't want to be the one talking, you know, as much as possible. You want to ask them about their life or their problems and then let them, um, let them go off about it, right? Uh, if you're talking most of the time, it probably means you're pitching. You've made the conversation about your product instead of your customer. Um, and don't take hypotheticals or guesses at what people will do in the future. Um, don't go, you know, would you ever do this? Might you ever do this? Of course they might someday, maybe, uh, instead ask them, you know, the, the specifics, how do you do it today? How did you do it last time? So no opinions, no hypotheticals and as much as possible, shut up and let them talk. Yeah. And I can think of so many products where, um, you know, the, the, the research turned up a hundred percent of people would buy this product and use it. And, you know, when the product was on the market, zero of those people actually went out and, and, and paid the money and, and bought it and used it. So yeah, they were absolutely lying. Um, and you know, they're lying, thinking they're helping us. I think that's the worst part of it, right? They think they're doing us a favor <laughs> by telling, by giving us bad data. 
And um, the mom test tells us there are three types of bad data. Uh, and I think each one of those is important for the listener to recognize because those are some of the things that when, when I was reading the book, I was you know, nodding and saying, oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is so true. And, and it's, it, it can be, they can be so hard to detect if you don't know what you're looking for, too. So those types of bad data are compliments, fluff, and ideas. Um, and, and I think it's worth kind of going through those th- three briefly to be, because I think they're, you know, they're, they're so on the money as far as what is what happens. So one thing that you point out a few times in the book is how dangerous compliments are. And, and we love to hear compliments. They make us feel good about our ideas, but you call compliments the fool's gold of customer learning. So tell us about that. Why are compliments so bad? It's great. It's, if someone's obviously lying to you or if they're giving you an obvious, it's easy for you to discount it and disregard it. But when someone's, when the lie is in the shape of what you really want to hear and what you really want to believe, because your job, everything you want is to prove that there's a market for this, to prove that you're on the right track, to prove that customers want it. Um, you're searching through all these dead leads and disinterested customer segments to find that. And so when you think you've seen it, when someone's giving you, they're saying, yeah, I love this. This is awesome. I've never seen anything like this before. It's so innovative. It's so well-designed your brain so desperately wants to read that as like the sign of a real customer as a commitment. So the compliments are more dangerous um, just because we want to believe them so badly. So when you're, when you're interviewing someone and they are paying you compliments, do you find it's best to say thanks or just ignore the compliment altogether and move on? Uh, I mean, ideally you avoid getting into the situation because where does the compliment come from? It comes from you pitching your idea. And when you pitch the idea, what you're really doing is you're putting your ego on the table. You're saying, look, like, this is my dream. I poured my heart and soul into this. What do you think? Be honest. And they're like, oh, man, I don't want this person to cry in front of me. They're, they're automatically forced to pull their punches a little bit. So if you're getting complimented, you already screwed up. So the best thing to do is, is catch yourself. You're like, whoops, I made a mistake. Disregard what I'm currently hearing. And be like, hey, you were telling me something about your life. Or, hey, how did you deal with this last time? You try to get them back into the concrete facts about themselves and, and out of the land of, of feeling like they have to pay compliments to your idea. So the compliment um, and taking notes helps a lot because you can review your notes later and you're like, wait, compliment, compliment, compliment. I see how I caused that. It's easier to strike them out of your notes than your memory. Yeah. That's what I was recognizing here is that the compliment can actually be um, a flag that you can watch for. So it can actually be kind of a, a, a method you use for, for self-correction, getting back on track and saying, oops, okay, I see by the fact that, that this is happening, that, that I've got to do, make some corrections if I want this, this data to be worth anything to me in the end, right? So I, I understand what, what you're saying with that. And um, the, the next, the next uh, kind of bad data you have in there is fluff. And I love that the world's most deadly fluff is the statement, I would definitely buy that because a lot of marketers, even researchers might find it's surprising that, that that's that that's bad because that's what they think they're looking for. They think that's telling them the product is a slam dunk, at least with one customer. So what's wrong when someone says, I would definitely buy that? The problem is they're not in a buying mindset um, and they're not in a buying situation and they're not actually giving anything up. That's a really easy thing to say. And when you're pitching an idea or showing someone an early demo, what you're doing them is, is they're imagining all the benefits without facing the realities of actually using it. So when you're like, yeah, it's like a, an alternative to email. It's so much better. People are thinking, oh, they're only thinking about the good thing. They're not thinking about how much it, they'd have to tear up their whole workflow and tool chain if they replaced email with something else. Um, and so like that's part of it. They're not in a buying mindset. They're not in an installation mindset. They're not dealing with the realities. Like where do I put this great new product on my shelf? Like where does it fit into my kitchen? Um, 
that's part of it. And also people are just so optimistic. Like how many new year's resolutions have you broken to yourself? You know, you make it, I am definitely going to go to the gym this year. And, and, and like, you don't, we're just like, people are terrible about predicting future behavior. So the ways you solve that is you either, um, try to judge their seriousness by how much effort they're already spending on the problem. So if there's like a problem at some business and they've hired a team of five interns to solve it, who they're, they're paying, uh, you know, it's like, whoa, they're spending a lot of money to deal with this issue. Whereas someone else is like, I eh, just kind of ignore it. Uh, so you, you kind of have to learn about their life and make their own decision or get them to give you something they care about. Yeah. Uh, compliments are free. <laughs> yeah. You can ask for money. You can ask for like big, meaningful chunks of their time. You can ask for introductions to their boss or superiors, like basically anything that they'd only give you if they really care. You can use that to immediately shift them back into a buying mindset. And if you notice discomfort, it's not about tricking them. It's just about noticing that discomfort and be like, oh, you know, it seems like it's not quite for you. Or it seems like you're just using the commitment as a way to be like, is it an empty commitment? Like, are are they imagining they'd want it or do they potentially actually want it? Yeah. And you mentioned just a second ago that, you know, if they've dedicated resources or effort, you know, have they Googled the problem or or trying to find a solution? Because there, you know, in many cases, there might even be existing solutions, but they haven't even gone so far as to look for them. And the third, the third type of bad data is ideas, which again, you know, on the surface, it sounds like, well, people giving ideas and and making suggestions to help improve this thing, that should be helpful. Let's, let's see how many good ideas we can get from, from this research. Um, (laughs) But that's, you know, when people are telling you, oh, it's got to have X in order to be truly great. Um, that that obviously can be really bad, too, because if you have an MVP, you're, you're striving to make. Uh, now you're going to bloat the product. You're going to you're going to change the whole development process. You can get really distracted by this stuff. But isn't there is there any good that can come from from these ideas that come forward? They can they not be taking you in a direction of improving your product or maybe even getting you back on track to what the real need is in the market. Maybe it's not what you think. What do you, can there be good ideas? Yeah. So I love hearing ideas from customers. It's just, I don't blindly do them. So it's, it's, um, and where the real gold is, um, is if you dig underneath that feature request because you go, Hey, why do you want that? Like, what are you doing today since you don't have that feature? Like, what are you really trying to accomplish? Like, how would this change your life to have this? And often, um, what you're trying to do is, is the feature request is a sign that they have some pain or some unsolved goal or some frustration. Sometimes it's important. Sometimes it's just like a fun idea that they're giving you because whatever. Um, so you're trying to dig beneath this. The feature request is the signal. You're trying to, or sorry, the, the signal. And you're trying to dig below that to find the root cause. And that's like the problem or the goal. And then you come to your own decision as a product designer about like, okay, one, is that goal worth serving? Like I don't have to say yes to every request, even if it's valid. Um, and if you decide it is, like, what's the best way to do it? And it, it might end up looking very different than what the, the customer originally requested. Um, like, they asked for a better way to uh, attach files to emails, but what they really want is, like, hands-off backup or, like, secure backup or whatever. Who knows? Um, try to get to their motivations. Yeah, and we work mostly with uh, with physical products, but I, and it can happen there, too, although I've been involved in software products, especially where you're working on an app and every single meeting brings somebody bringing up a new feature idea that has to be added to the scope. And and this is going to be the thing that's going to make it wonderful. And this, you know, here's why everybody's going to buy the product and you know exactly what that does. Right. So I, I, you know, I, I 
more than I see the value of ideas, I, I see the damage they cause and I see the, the risk potential for, for even entertaining them, especially at an early stage. And especially when you're the marketer, because that's the role I'm usually in or, you know, or working on, on the development side. And these ideas are popping up and, and derailing all the, the existing priorities because someone woke <laughs> up with this eureka moment in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. I, I like to, for myself, I always try to think when I get excited about something, I'm like, is, is, is that like part of the core or is that an optimization? And then I'm like, oh, that's, that's a really cool, really clever optimization. It's like, okay, I can do that after the business is already working and profitable and people like the product. And I can return to that treasure trove of fun little uh, add-ons. <laughs> yeah, and when when you're interviewing, there's there's something you call zooming, and 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 also uh, another thing called that you refer refer to as premature zoom. Tell us about about that. How when you're when you're when you're discussing um, a product with somebody and, and and gauging interest and and trying to find out if if this is going to be viable, how how you decide when to zoom. So zooming is, is when you kind of shift. Uh, to the next most, there's multiple layers in the conversation. So when I'm first talking to someone, like my very first question is like, are they even one of my customers? Like if I'm building a, a toy for babies, like do they have babies? Um, and that's like the first layer. Once you've confirmed that you're like, cool, then you're zooming in. And then the next layer is maybe like, I want to understand if they care at all about the problem. Like, is this an issue to them? Like if I've built a cool new way for kids to learn um, how to create music, it's like a simpler baby version of an instrument that lays good music fundamentals. Like in theory, that's good. In theory, everyone wants their kids to be, be musical, but this particular person I'm talking to, do they see music education as a, a problem worth solving? Are they going to be motivated to buy this thing? Whatever. Um, and once you're, once you've confirmed like, yeah, they care about the problem, you can kind of zoom up into maybe uh, talking about what the product is or the exact features or price point or some of the details. But the point is with premature zooming is if you start a conversation by talking about product features, you will never learn if the problem matters. And if you start by talking about the problem, you might not even realize that you're not talking to someone who has it. You, um, so you want to start broadly and then you're, you're like, you're zooming in once you get the, the confidence that you understand that layer. And, and when it comes to questions, you, you, you talk about going into into these interviews with your big three questions. And, and I, I love that idea of having that kind of focus. How do you yourself determine what those big three questions should be so that you go in and, and you're, you're, you're at least on more or less on the right track. I know they can evolve. If, if I'm thinking of it from like a whole business perspective, like early on it's questions like, uh, do they care and will someone pay for this? And then you're getting into more concrete, uh, questions like, okay, have I, um, chosen the right type of product like does it have roughly the right features can i make it roughly available and you're kind of you're going through the business model um but in any given like individual conversation it's just what's most immediately scary and what information i need to make the next set of decisions about my business or my product features um and so an early one might be like is this legal or like do they understand how to use it might be like a product focused one um some of them about the customer's lives some are about the interaction with what you're building um and you kind of know, and they, they just like shift. If you start, you're like, what's killing us this week? Or like, what's blocking us from making this big decision? Um, and, and I think of them as areas I'm trying to learn about rather than exactly questions. So I might be trying to be like, okay, they say it's a problem, but do they have a budget? Might be like something I'm trying to learn about. So it's just this like area of budgets and willingness to pay. Um, and the reason I like three is I just found if I went in with 20 questions, it would come off very um, boring. I'd be turning into an interviewing robot and, the people I was talking to would stop enjoying it. Whereas it was like three topics, 
that really mattered to me. Um, it was structured enough for me to learn something of value, but still loose enough that I could have a conversation that didn't feel like hard work to the other person. Yeah. And you, you tend to get some consistency too, right? As far as, you know, apples to apples answers coming back within the data, as opposed to having a list of 20 that you kind of pick and choose from. And, and now, you know, you're a, a small percentage might answer some of the questions effectively and others are, are, are you know, pushing your data all over the place. And, and, and so you, know, you get more comparables that way, I think. You'll, um, you'll shift your questions over time, but you're usually like, if I'm talking to five, five customers in a week, let's say, or five users, I, I'm going to ask them kind of the same types of questions. So I'm basically hearing the same things from everyone or I've heard it all before and I kind of understand it. And then it's like, okay, answer that question. Then add a, add a couple more to the group. This has been really helpful, Rob. I really appreciate you taking the, the time to, to, to do this call with us. Is there anything else that you might add for, um, for our, our listener who is typically <laughs> has an idea in many cases and they are considering, you know, investing it and taking it to market and, and taking a, a chance on it. Um, is there anything else that you suggest that, that they should consider before they go into to doing these interviews and, and testing it, testing the idea, at least testing what the idea is going to do against potential real world customers? Yeah, a, a couple of comments. One is that you're never going to get perfect certainty. Um, and it's a bit of a trap to seek 100% safety or 100% certainty. Uh, what you're trying to do is uh, take the low-hanging fruits in terms of learning like at a certain point, you need to, you know, put the thing in people's hands and see if they use it and pay for it and whatnot. Um, and depending on the type of idea, like you might be able to get an easy 20% certainty from having a few conversations. And, and in some, it's much higher than that. You feel totally confident just off conversations. But I'd say like take uh, the easy learning. It's crazy to, to not take the easy stuff. Um, but don't worry that you're not getting up to 100% and recognize that your confidence is going to be different. Like it's always riskier to make a toy than it is to make a problem solver because toys, you can't prove that people like them until they're finished. Like both are good types of products, right? It's just easier to test the problem solver. Um, and start with the easy conversations first. Start with the friendly ones. Start with the non-stressful ones. Um, it's like, it's a skill that you're going to build over time, like skateboarding or, or pottery. So if it's new to you, like you don't start with the hard, scary people. Uh, start with the ones you can not feel too bad about it if it goes uh, totally sideways. That's it for this episode of Product Knowledge and our conversation with tech entrepreneur Rob Fitzpatrick. You can find Rob's website, including links to his books, at robfitz.com, R-O-B-F-I-T-Z.com. Visit graphosproduct.com, where you can find out more about Graphos, our services, ideas, or more podcasts and our blog. All our podcasts are transcribed for the deaf and hard of hearing. Reach out on Twitter at graphosproduct or email us through the form on graphosproduct.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Schwabe.